Verse 46 of Mark chapter 10. Now they, this is Jesus, the disciples, a multitude of pilgrims making their way from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, as they have left the Jordan River Valley, the area just north of the Dead Sea, making their way through the Judean wilderness up to Jerusalem, they came to Jericho. And as Jesus went out of Jericho with his disciples, this great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But many warned him, warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, before we unpack our text, before we get to the meat of what Jesus uh, is doing here and what will unfold as the scene develops, there is a relevant question that's often thrown out from this passage that deserves our attention. Because there are those of higher learning, those that are skeptic, that love to take this story and point out a contradiction, a discrepancy. And so before we get into anything, we should address the question as to is there a contradiction between Mark, Matthew, and Luke's setting of this scene. Now let me explain why this often gets brought up by these skeptics. Mark and Matthew indicate that when Jesus had come to Jericho and then was leaving Jericho, that the scene with Bartimaeus unfolds. Mark even says, he says, they came to Jericho and as they were going out of Jericho, but Luke, in chapter 18, verse 35, Luke's account of the story, Luke says that it happened that as Jesus was coming near Jericho, that blind Bartimaeus cried out. And so there are those that would like to say, see, there's a problem. You can't believe what the Bible says. Here's a contradiction. The reality is that there are two very simple answers to what would appear to be a contradiction. First, I believe that the gospel writers are actually describing two different Jerichos. Let me explain. There was the ancient city of Jericho. If you've ever attended Sunday school, you're somewhat familiar with the old city of Jericho. This was the Jericho where Joshua and the children of Israel came to it, walked around the walls, blew their trumpets, and the walls came a-tumbling down. That ancient city was rebuilt. Some even speculate that Jericho and not Damascus might be the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. The old city existed, and so as you were coming from the Jordan River Valley, from the, the area there at the Dead Sea, up to Jerusalem, you would first come to the old city of Jericho. But right outside of the old city, as you're making your way to Jerusalem, you would, leaving the old city, enter the new city of Jericho, known as Herodian Jericho. King Herod had constructed this city just south of the ancient ruins, and it was populated during this time period by wealthy religious, political, and uh, military establishment. So there were two cities with Jericho, making it very easy for you to be traveling out of one Jericho and traveling into another Jericho 
at the same time, meaning that Matthew and Mark and Luke are all correct in what they're describing. I also think that there's another explanation, and that is that the gospel writers might actually be describing two very, very similar but separate events. Luke and Mark. If you read through their accounts, they're almost identical. As a matter of fact, really the only difference between Mark's account of Jesus' interactions with blind Bartimaeus and Luke's account is that Mark just gives us the name. Luke doesn't provide the name Bartimaeus. Matthew's account, though, though similar, is actually really different in two ways. First, there are two blind men that encounter Jesus. They cry out the same thing as Bartimaeus, but they're two, not one. Secondly, when Jesus engages them, when he heals them, Matthew tells us that he had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately they received sight. No mention of compassion in Luke or Mark's account, not to mention no mention of Jesus touching them. It's my opinion that those similar we're getting two different events. Once again, explaining that there is not a contradiction here, but if you dig a little deeper, there's a very plausible explanation. Now, our scene of activity. As Jesus, the disciples, a great multitude, they're making their way out of the old city of Jericho. They're making their way into the new city of Jericho, the Herodian Jericho. The scene immediately shifts. The crew, the entourage, they're making their way through the city, the scene shifts to an interesting character. Mark says that blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. We should develop here for a moment a character profile because I find that Bartimaeus is one of the most fascinating characters in the entire gospel narrative. So what do we know? Well, I guess most obviously we know his name, right? Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And you should note that that's significant. How many, just thinking back through the Gospel of Mark, how many names are we given of people who encounter and are healed by Jesus? Not a lot. As a matter of fact, Bartimaeus is one of but a few people we're actually given the identity of concerning Jesus healing them. And it's believed that the reason we're given the identity of Bartimaeus, like we're given the, the identity of Lazarus, or we're given the identity of Mary Magdalene, is because Bartimaeus, when Mark is writing his gospel, was known in the first century church. That following his engaging encounter with Jesus, that Bartimaeus continued to follow Jesus, was a part of the early church, was present on Pentecost, and the people knew him. So as Mark is writing from Peter's account of the story, he includes the name because everyone would know, hey, that's the story of Bart. I know Bart. What a cool guy. What a cool story. What a cool connection. So first, we know his name. Secondly, we know his condition. We're told that he's blind Bartimaeus, which the Greek can structure here is kind of interesting because we're given the fact that he's blind as an adjective, blind Bartimaeus, which means that not only was his blindness a condition, but his blindness was also his identity, that he was known around town as blind Bartimaeus. It wasn't that 
he was blind. It was he was known as being blind. Like there was other Bartimaeuses walking around town, but the easiest way to make the distinction is be like, blind Bartimaeus. And so his condition was also his identity. The word Bartimaeus literally means son of the unclean one, which might indicate why we're given the name of his father. But either way, it does develop a bit more of an understanding of Bartimaeus, his background, and what he was facing in that culture. We've mentioned this before, and we won't rehash too much, but the pervasive ideology, the pervasive religious concept that existed in the first century is really the same idea that exists today, and it's what we've already coined as theistic karma. This idea that if you put good things into the world, you will reap good things. And if you sow bad things into the world, you will reap bad things. That God rewards and punishes based upon our goodness or our wickedness. The problem, as we've noted before, is that there are lots of inconsistencies with this. Scripturally, you'll see that there are good people, righteous people that suffer. Well, wait a second, that goes against the idea. And there are wicked people in Scripture that prosper. And we know them today. And so there is a a logical discrepancy with theistic karma from a, a, a logical, philosophical standpoint. But understand, in the first century, Judaism was based in theistic karma. Meaning that the explanation for sickness, it was very simple. If you were sick, if you were diseased, if you had an ailment, you had this infirmity because God was punishing you for some kind of sin. Once again, you have clearly reaping what you've sown. And sometimes it was very easy to connect the two. But in other instances, it was a bit more difficult, especially with people who were born with defects. You see, birth defects really challenge, yes, the notion of karma, but then even more so the idea of theistic karma. Because if you're born with a sickness, if you're born with a defect, then how can you attribute that problem to the sin of the individual, right? If you're a baby and you've been born blind or Down syndrome or with some kind of a sickness or an ailment or an infirmity, how can you, in all good conscience and reason, in a reasonable aspect, how can you attribute that to some sin of the infant? Just moments, moments old, or we even now know that these things develop within the womb. The baby hasn't even breathed air, and you're going to say that it has this, this illness because of sin. You see, there's a problem with birth defects when it comes to theistic karma which meant in the first century that the explanation for it to remain consistent was that it wasn't the sin of the individual that caused this ailment, but rather the sin of the parents. This is where this whole idea developed. So you had blind Bartimaeus, who very possibly had been born blind, were given his name Timaeus. Bartimaeus means son of the unclean one. They attributed the fact that Bartimaeus was blind because of some sin that existed within his parents. And that's craziness. Now, on a side note, Hinduism, Hinduism takes the entire concept one step further. 
<coughs> it actually provides the whole basis for reincarnation. If you're born with the defect or you're born into a certain class of people, the explanation for why you're born with that already predetermined judgment is because of the sin of your previous life, that you are being reincarnated to a new life based upon the decisions you made in the previous life. And so if you're a really wicked dude here and you're reincarnated as a chicken, that's the pure consequence of whatever decisions you are making today. So you have incentive to do real good in this life because you don't want to come back as a cockroach. You would prefer to come back, you know, as a really handsome debonair kind of guy that's very wealthy. I mean, it's the whole hierarchy. It's how it's all established. So Bartimaeus, literally meaning son of the unclean one, we know his condition. He's blind, but it's more than just blindness. He's condemned. He's untouchable. He's an outcast. He is a down and outer. It would have been the religious conclusion of everyone that blind Bartimaeus was blind because of either the sin of his parents or his own sin. Very possibly, from a historical angle, could have been a venereal disease. The third thing we should note about Bartimaeus is we also know his activity. We're told that Bartimaeus, we know his name, we know his condition, he sat by the road begging. You know, I don't, I don't really think that there are two sadder words in the Bible or two more relatable words in the Bible than those two words, Bartimaeus sat. And a world that was moving, and a world of activity, and a world of comings and goings, Bartimaeus was paralyzed. Not literally, but his blindness had made him immovable. He just sat as the whole world went by. And have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that your life isn't moving at all? Have you ever felt stuck? Whether it's your sin or some fear or some anxiety, have, could you sympathize with Bartimaeus in the sense that there's a world moving by and it seems as though there's people with purpose and hope and, and, and happiness and you're just stuck Wherever you are, you're stuck. You're stuck in your depression. You're stuck in your sin. You're stuck in your fear. You're stuck and you can't move. And thus, you're sitting there condemned. Or you're sitting there in hopelessness. Or you're sitting there with no future. Or you're sitting there with a lack of purpose. You're sitting there, very possibly, just begging for someone to help. This is Bartimaeus. And Jericho was a good place to sit, especially if you were a beggar. For three main reasons, Jericho, the Herodian Jericho, was very affluent. Lots of people with lots of money, meaning that there would be expendable income. Bartimaeus, sitting in a wealthy part of town, it was a good place to receive a handout. Not to mention, because of the high uh, population of the religious establishment, you would also think that there would be a high moral reputation that existed. So lots of expendable income and hopefully a heart of charity. But also, Jericho was one of the main stops if you were a pilgrim traveling 
to Jerusalem. To do what? To worship God. And so you're in a city of affluence, a city of charity, with uh, being a pit stop of people traveling to worship God. And so how can you go and worship God, and you see a blind man, how could you not give a little, right? You know, a little handout. You know, trying to maybe store up a few good deeds on your way to Jerusalem so that your sacrifice is accepted. And so Bartimaeus has placed himself in a good place, and he's begging. But fourthly, we see his faith. Read it again. And when he heard, he's blind. So Bartimaeus hears a commotion. He hears that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they warned him to shut up, but he cried out all the more. That, that, that's how I translated to be quiet. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, now let's get back to the scene of activity. He's sitting at the gate. He hears a commotion in the distance. It's getting closer and closer. The pitter-patter of feet. The, 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 the activity of a crowd. Bartimaeus is frantically asking people who are walking by, What's going on? Who's coming? An unnamed bystander tells him, it's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He's coming through town. Now, I think it's, I think it's an easy conclusion for us to assume that Bartimaeus had heard stories of Jesus. Though this will be the first time that Jesus comes to Jerusalem according to Mark's gospel. This is not his first time traveling through Jericho. Bartimaeus has undoubtedly heard the stories of Jesus. Probably had heard the stories that Jesus had healed blind people. And from his response, it's evident that what he had heard had led him to two incredible conclusions. And isn't it true that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So these two conclusions. Bartimaeus. He first had reached a conclusion. He had never seen Jesus. He had never heard Jesus. He is simply hearing stories of Jesus. And this produced within his heart faith in two ways. First, who Jesus was. He declares, Jesus, son of David. And this phrase, the son of David, Though we're, we're going to expand upon it in one of our B-sides this week, it was an Old Testament name for the Messiah. So Bartimaeus is declaring who Jesus was. You are the son of David. You are the promised Savior. You are the coming King. And he's declaring this out as loud as he can possibly be. But then he also makes another observation or reaches another conclusion. Bartimaeus concluded correctly who Jesus was, but also what Jesus could do. Jesus, son of David. And then what does he say? Have mercy on me. If grace is Jesus giving us what we don't deserve, mercy can be defined as Jesus withholding from us what we do deserve. Grace giving us what we don't, mercy withholding what we do. Now, think about it. Bartimaeus, whether he believed this, whether it had just been ingrained in his skull, he understood, he recognized that his present condition, his blindness, the fact that he was a beggar, 
that he was stuck, that he was immovable. It was the byproduct of sin and was therefore his condition, his plight, he was experiencing the judgment of God. This is how his thought process is. I'm blind, this is the result of sin. My blindness is thus a a, a judgment that God is bestowing on me. Bartimaeus. Note he makes no excuses for his condition. He doesn't claim unfair treatment. It's not as though Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road saying, Jesus, son of David, how dare you allow me? What did I do? I thought you were good. I thought you were noble. I thought you were, I thought you were kind. No, Bartimaeus provides no excuses. He doesn't claim unfair treatment. His appeal to Jesus was not even based on his compassion which is why I think this story is a little different from Matthew. Bartimaeus, his plea is not towards Jesus' love. It's not towards Jesus' compassion. It's not towards Jesus' goodness. His appeal was towards Jesus' mercy. We should also note that his faith was desperate. And undeterred, Mark says that many warned him to be quiet. But his response is he cried out all the more. Bartimaeus knew that this very well could have been his final opportunity to encounter Jesus. And he was not going to let it pass him by. And so, verse 49, three unbelievable words. Jesus stood still, and he commanded Bartimaeus to be called. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. Now for weeks, we've noted that Jesus has been on a direct, a deliberate, an undeterred journey towards Jerusalem. And yet, he hears in the distance This cry from blind Bartimaeus, a cry for mercy. And Jesus stood still. Bartimaeus' cry of faith, his cry of desperation, it stopped the pace of Jesus in its tracks. I want to make a side note, and I got to leave it to a B side. I love the fact. And I don't know if you, if, you, if you noticed this. It wasn't until my last read-through of my notes that it jumped out at me. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's unbelievable. Jesus, look at the flow. Jesus heard the cry of a desperate man. A cry of a man that was hurting. A cry of a man that was appealing to mercy. A man that was crying for Jesus to intervene and save him. And what did Jesus do? He used others to call him. Jesus stood still. He stopped. And what did he do? He turned to others and he said, go and bring him for I am calling. You know, Jesus is still doing this today. That Jesus hears the cries, the cry of faith of people that are blind, that are desperate, that are stuck, that are crying out for mercy. 
Jesus hears them and he's calling them, but who will be his vessel? It'll be you. Do you know people that are crying out? And is there a moving of the Spirit of God on your heart where Jesus is saying, go get them and bring them to me? That's our job. And I, I could take the rest of our time on that point, but we're going to leave it to a B-side because there's a big observation that has to be made. Jesus stood still upon the cry of faith from Bartimaeus, which tells me that Jesus is never so busy that he will not respond to the cry of faith. Now you should note that the cry of faith carries with it a few characteristics. Bartimaeus, his condition, his plight, his cry for help is very relatable. I very much relate to it. But Jesus' response is also very relatable. So there's some things we can learn about faith by looking at Bartimaeus. And first, it's that the cry of faith, the true cry of faith, it begins with humility. Once again, Bartimaeus didn't cry out for any other thing but mercy. Humility. Let me give you a definition of humility that I think is spot on. Humility is seeing yourself as nothing more than what God says that you are. And what does God say that you are? Well, let me just give you two quick passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus says concerning you that there is none righteous. No, not one. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says concerning our salvation, for we have been saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Nothing that we earn, nothing that we deserve, only something that is given to be received. Bartimaeus, and this is an important lesson for us all, Bartimaeus understood something, an important reality, and that is that Jesus owed him nothing. Do you understand that? Jesus owes you nothing. Whether by the sin of his parents or the sin of his own personal choices. Maybe it was simply the universal consequences of living in a sinful world that brought blindness to Bartimaeus. He knew that he deserved nothing more than what he presently had. Okay, I'm blind, but at least I'm breathing. I'm blind, but at least I can cry out for help. I'm blind, but at least I got friends. I'm blind, but at least I have, a, I have, I have parents. I'm in this condition but I also look at my blessing. He cried for mercy. You know, we make a tragic, tragic mistake when we approach God on the basis of what we think we deserve. We make a tragic mistake when we come to God asking God to give to me what I believe that I'm owed. And oh, haven't we all prayed it? We look at our condition, we look at our set of circumstances, we look at what we've been dealt, the hand that we have. And we say, I've been shortchanged, and we're on our knees, and we're crying out to God, making excuses, hurling accusations, saying all kinds of, realizing that if we come to God on the basis of what we deserve, we're in trouble. David Guzik, he cautions against this kind of logic he said in a pastor's conference that I attended, he said, do you really want to start dealing with God on the basis of what you deserve? 
so often it's, it's easy for a pastor, but also just for, for all of us to say, Jesus, I'm serving you, and, I, and, I, and I'm forsaking all, and look at all I'm doing for you, and, and, and look at my life. You, you owe me. What about this whole, like, you will be a debtor to no man thing? You owe me. If you really want to start coming to God on the basis of what you deserve, take a step back and look at what you actually deserve. Salvation is not what you deserve. It's something that's given. It's grace. It's what you don't deserve that he freely gives. What you deserve is hell for all eternity. That's what you deserve. And so you might look at your set of circumstances and say, this is horrible. Let me challenge you to maybe reevaluate them. It could be worse. Instead of looking at all of your problems, why not look at your blessings? Why not come to God on bending knee, not making excuses or hurling accusations, but saying, Lord, have mercy. If this is what you want me to bear, if this is what you want me to carry, if you want me to be blind forever, okay, so be it. But I do ask for mercy because mercy appeals to something within Jesus. Barnabas, he approached Jesus offering no complaints. He provided no excuses. He levied no accusations. He provided no unfounded justifications. Barnabas' appeal was not to what he thought he needed, why he felt God owed him, or what he believed he deserved. His appeal was simply to Jesus' mercy. And so is the real cry of faith. But we should also note that the cry of faith, it demonstrates persistence. So it begins with humility, a humble heart, saying, anything you give me is a blessing. What you withhold is a blessing. I just appeal to your mercy and your grace. But then there is a persistence that we find demonstrated in Bartimaeus's cry of faith. There were those trying to get him to shut up, but he kept crying out. You know, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus encourages us to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. And these three words, ask and seek and knock, it, it means perpetually to continuously ask, to continuously seek, to be consistently knocking. How sad is it how quickly we will give up crying out in faith? How quickly we will become discouraged? How quickly we will begin to, to, to say that Jesus doesn't care? Bartimaeus cried out. They told him to shut up, and he cried out, and there was no stop, and he cried out, and he cried out. We don't know how long he was crying out, but he cried out long enough. For Jesus to hear. And with whatever you're dealing with, Jesus will stand still and respond to a cry of faith. But a cry of faith, a real cry of faith, it doesn't give up. And you know what? Maybe your cry of faith, if it's really based in humility, it might find itself persistent till the day you die. And then guess what happens? Jesus is standing still on the right hand of the throne of God ready to take whatever you've been carrying away for the rest of eternity. 
But also note that the cry of faith, it produces an expectancy. Look at verse 50. And throwing aside his garment, Bartimaeus rose and he came to Jesus. Upon hearing the news that Jesus was calling for him, he does two interesting things. First, he threw aside his garment. Now, you know, maybe it was just heavy, right? Or it was a hot sunny day, didn't need it. The phrase here, his garment, in the Greek it emphasizes a garment that the culture reading this would have been familiar with, though we're not familiar with it. This garment was actually what was called the garment of the beggar. It was a unique coat that existed within the first century culture that was given. It was the only kind of form of welfare, but it was given to to people with genuine needs, who genuinely needed to beg for help, for alms, in order to differentiate between those who were just wanting to scam the system. It was to differentiate between the guy on the curb that really needed your help versus the guy on the curb that was just trying to rip you off. The garment of the beggar. Think of it in some ways as a handicap sticker. For the beggar, it was the one thing that legitimized his need for charity, and he threw it aside. Don't forget he's blind. Last time I checked, when you throw something aside and you go running as a blind man, very difficult to find it again. Like you want things close by, but he threw it off, revealing his confidence that he would never need that garment again. Barnabas was so certain that Jesus would heal him of his blindness that he let go of all security to come encounter the son of David. But he also rose and came. And these two Greek words, rose and came, they indicate that Bartimaeus, the scene, upon hearing the news, he throws his garment, he jumps up, and he springs into action. Which is funny, because who's leading him here? I have no idea. I, in my twisted mind, I see Bartimaeus like running into this wall, and like running into that wall, and tripping over this. But he's just desperate. He's just running, and he's barreling through the crowd, and someone's like directing him from behind how to get to Jesus. But there's no hesitation. There's no insecurity. It's He hears the call, he throws off the garment, he springs up, and he goes bolting down the street to where he hears the crowd with no intention of ever returning. And so Jesus, he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I might receive my sight. Now this is a weird question, isn't it? What can I do for you? Um, I don't know if you noticed me tripping all the way here, uh, but I'm blind. Like, that would be a wonderful place to start. Like, like you have to kind of ask. When, when his condition, like his real need was pretty obvious, why would Jesus ask such an obvious question? Well, I think the answer, it's subtle but, but powerful. I think Jesus asked him this question because he wanted Bartimaeus to be verbally specific. Bartimaeus is crying out, appealing to mercy, which is general. But he comes and he counters Jesus, and his request is more specific. He wants his sight restored. You know, the core of our prayers really should be focused on seeing God's will done on earth rather than mine accomplished in heaven. Though our prayer should be, Lord, you do on earth what you see fit. May I just be a vessel 
I'm not kicking down the doors of heaven trying to get you to just do whatever you want, you know, whatever I want. And so we often approach our prayers being general. But I think that there's a counter lesson here, that sometimes Jesus wants us to be specific, that it's okay to bring your specific needs to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter says, casting all your cares upon him. Knowing what? That he cares for you. You know, sadly, it is the lack of faith in God that causes us to be so general with our prayers. Sometimes it's the fear that something won't happen, that Jesus won't come through, that causes us to be real general. This was convicting to me. Zach, be more specific. If someone comes up with a need, be specific on that need. Quit being so general. Sometimes there's a a good place for it, but in other times when Jesus asks, what do you want? You tell him. Barnabas, his response, I love this response. He says, Rabboni, that I might receive my sight. This word, Rabboni, it's a weird word. It is the strengthened Aramaic form of the word that we get Lord or Master. Uh, The Bible, really four languages you find in the original Hebrew. You find a passage in Daniel that's in Chaldean. Most of the New Testament is Greek, but you find certain words in Aramaic, common language of the day. This is one of them. But the word, the word does two things. Yes, it acknowledges Jesus' title or position as being Lord or Master. But, and this is what makes it such a cool word, it places Jesus' position or his title into a personal form. It's not just Lord. It's literally my precious Lord, my personal master, Rabboni. It's not just this is your title or I'm acknowledging it's who you are. It's this is what you are to me. You know, there's only one other person in the entire Bible that uses this word for Jesus. And it's after the resurrection when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and she sees that Jesus isn't there and she's weeping and she encounters the gardener. But first, she doesn't recognize to be Jesus. And when she does, when the scales fall from her eyes and she sees that this is Jesus, she declares, Rabboni, my precious Lord, and she grabs hold of him. It's the same word, which reveals to me such an incredible heart or perspective from Bartimaeus, who, by the way, is not healed of blindness yet, and who has had no interaction with Jesus other than simply what? What he's heard. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, immediately, he received his sight and he followed Jesus on the road. Now, I'm kind of a geek when it comes to miracles and how certain things work. And one of the B-sides, we're going to set aside to discussing the eyeball, like what it actually takes to receive sight, because Jesus just speaks, doesn't even touch him, just speaks the same voice that spoke all things into existence out of nothing, that same voice spoke and he could see. And like what it took for Bartimaeus, someone who was blind, to immediately be able to see is awesome. Because first, his eyes had to be healed so he could physically take in the image. And then his brain had to be programmed so he could chemically then process the image he was seeing. 
And then Jesus would have to actually impart years of visual memory he had never had before so that he could neurologically grasp what it was that he was seeing. There are missionaries in in, in certain worlds that, that are providing actual basic medical treatment so people who have not been able to see can see again. And one of the things that they, that they recount story after story after story is, okay, just because you give someone their vision back, the problem is, is that what they see, they have no visual memory to associate it with anything. And so they can't differentiate between I'm smiling and that means I'm happy versus I'm frowning and that means I'm bummed out because they have no visual memory. Bartimaeus When Jesus spoke, the physical aspects of his eyes was fixed. He could see, he could take in the image. The chemicals in his brain so he could process that image also were fixed. And he was given visual memory instantly so that he could process everything. It's awesome. The miracle of Jesus healing a man of blindness. We'll leave it to a B-side. But Jesus says, your faith is has made you well. Now, I want to take just a moment and address a misconception here. Very common misconception. Your faith. Understand, it was his faith in Jesus that brought him to Jesus, who was the source of healing. Please note that faith alone is powerless because faith completely depends upon the object in which it's placed. Faith did not heal Bartimaeus. Jesus healed Bartimaeus. It was his faith that brought him to the source of healing, which means that what is the source of healing? Your faith, like certain doctrines within Christianity would like you to believe, or Jesus? Jesus is the source of healing. Our faith brings us to him, which means It's up to Jesus whether or not he's going to heal or not or in what way he's going to heal or not. And your faith only brings you to the source. Your faith has no bearing on you being healed. But then he says, once again, i got to leave it to a B-side. But note, go your way. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made made you well. But we're told that he received his sight and he followed Jesus. Which means that Bartimaeus is totally disobedient. Like, Jesus is like, I'm going to heal you. Go your way. And Bartimaeus is like, great, thanks. I'm following you. Which to me is cool because think about it. I think anybody that comes to Jesus, and I see this as a pastor, they come to church and and they're wanting an encounter with Jesus. They want Jesus to touch them, to do something for them. You know the easiest way to tell whether a person is coming to church or coming to Jesus for a new life or a life band-aid is what they do once Jesus has worked. Because I think Jesus works in both scenarios. But the person only wanting a band-aid for their life, they go their way. But a person who's wanting a new life, they follow Jesus. We'll dig into that a little more in this week's B-Sides. Now, it's not an accident that this is the final healing miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry. That Jesus chose blind Bartimaeus and Jericho to be the final healing miracle of his earthly ministry. And I think, and with the sake of time, we'll do this quickly, 
There are five reasons. They'll be quick. Why I think Jesus chose this occasion with Bartimaeus to be the last miracle. First, I don't know if you, this light bulb went off in your brain. Jesus has been making this direct and deliberate journey to Jerusalem. But doesn't Bartimaeus contrast the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler refused to sell all, and he was mired in what? Self-righteousness. But Bartimaeus did not come to Jesus claiming his goodness, claiming he had obeyed the law, claiming righteousness. Bartimaeus came appealing to mercy. And when Jesus called, what did Bartimaeus do? He let go of everything he had. He let go of all. That wasn't much. It was just a garment. But he let go of all. And what did he do? He followed Jesus. The rich young ruler, self-righteous, and he couldn't let go of his things. Same invitation. But Bartimaeus, no self-righteousness. It was mercy. It was humility. And when Jesus called, he had no problems letting go, knowing that the life he would have following Jesus far exceeded anything that would remain in Jericho. And so Bartimaeus contrasts the rich young ruler, which is important. Bartimaeus contrasts the religious establishment. Jericho, the entire town, is wealthy religious uh, establishment. This was a religious town. But religion had done nothing for Bartimaeus. With so many priests and scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees all around him, passing him every day, religion had done nothing but condemn Bartimaeus and provided no remedy for his condition. But Jesus comes walking through. And I think to contrast himself with this dead religion known as Judaism, Jesus, he not only heals Bartimaeus, but then what does he do? Jesus attributes the work to what? To his faith in Jesus and not his works. It was faith that saved Bartimaeus and not his own goodness. The third thing, I think that Bartimaeus contrasted the blind disciples. We've mentioned this before, but the blind, hardened, their, their hardened heart had blinded them to who Jesus really was and what Jesus had really come to do. And yet Bartimaeus' encounter with Jesus removed his blindness, enabled him to see. And I think the disciples should have been standing there thinking, maybe we really don't get it. Like James and John, Bartimaeus didn't come bargaining for position or for status. He doesn't come wanting to be the greatest in the kingdom or to sit at the right hand of Jesus. If only the disciples had taken the approach of Bartimaeus this next week would have made way more sense. I also think Bartimaeus fourthly contrasts the unbeliever. Bartimaeus heard, he believed, cried out in faith. He responded to the call of a friend, and then Bartimaeus stepped out into darkness, believing that an encounter with Jesus would save him from his present condition. Do you believe the same? I know there are many of you who are stuck and you're hurting and you believe or you want to believe I'm a friend that's calling, that's saying he's calling. Note, Bartimaeus had no problems being led to a person he couldn't see because he knew this reputation of this person. 
Bartimaeus knew his condition. He wanted to be freed from his condition. And he immediately jumped at the opportunity to encounter Jesus, knowing that if he put it off, he might never be guaranteed another opportunity. No man knows the day of the hour of Jesus' return, but no man knows the day of the hour of their own death. And who knows that today, Jesus is calling, will you respond? You might never have another opportunity. But I think, fifthly, that Jesus contrasted Joshua. Now go with me for a moment. We're told that Jesus of Nazareth was declared. Jesus of Nazareth was traveling into Jericho. And we know that the name Jesus originates from the Latin form of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Yahshua. That's a mouthful other than to say that if you translate from the Hebrew to English, you don't get Jesus. You actually get Joshua. And isn't there an interesting connection between the Joshua of the Old Testament and Jesus? It was Joshua, not Moses, who brought the people into the land of promise. For the student of Scripture, you should know that Moses was not allowed to lead the people into the promised land because the law could never lead a person into the promises of God. Joshua would have to succeed him, and Jesus came to fulfill the law so that we could be saved by faith, not by works, by grace, not by the law. Joshua. You know his ministry? You know where it began? It began by dividing the waters of the Jordan River. And isn't it interesting to note that Jesus' ministry began at the exact same location, the Jordan River. But it was not the waters that parted. Instead, we're told that the heavens opened and what? The Spirit descended of the new covenant. You know, the greatest miracle Joshua ever performed was during the battle with the Amorites. Defeat was within was in their grasp. Victory over the Amorites was, was there for the taking but it was getting dark. And Joshua prayed that God might give them the victory over their enemy. And what took place? The sun stood still. And isn't it fascinating that in Jesus' final miracle, Bartimaeus cried out in faith and the sun stood still? Finally, you know, this was not the first time a Joshua had entered Jericho. In the Old Testament, when Joshua arrived to Jericho, he had come to do what? To pronounce judgment and to destroy the wicked. But this time, there is another Joshua that is entering the streets of Jericho. Another name of Joshua that is echoing around the town, but it's not one for destruction. Jesus, when he arrived, he came with one thing in mind, the cross. Jesus had not destruction or judgment, but had forgiveness and salvation. And Bartimaeus, Jesus' interaction with Bartimaeus, when it's all said and done, Bartimaeus is a picture of you and I, that we were once blind in our sin and our trespasses stuck in the mud. And yet we heard, and we believed, and we responded when a friend brought us and then Jesus gives us the option to go your way or to follow him. And Bartimaeus followed Jesus. And it changed his life forever. 
And we have him in the annals of scripture. This morning, Jesus is calling you. Hey, Bartimaeus, will you respond? So, Father, with that heavy thought, we allow these things to sink within our heart. In Jesus' name.